in spite of my uh, frailty, I've really had a good time. Uh, you know, one of the things that I enjoy doing more, almost more than anything else is sitting around the table after a meal and talking about the things of God. <clears throat> there was a young couple, I say a young couple, they're in their 30s, four kids. Uh, the mother-in-law lives with them, her, her mother. Uh, <clears throat> and so they invite me out. They're in my Bible study down at, the, at Watermark Church. Neat, neat couple. So I go out to their home, and we have dinner one night. And uh, after dinner, <clears throat> we kind of clear away the table and uh, sit down. The, you know, we cleared everything. And then we just kind of sat down and got a, got a cup of coffee. And we talked for almost two hours. And finally, the, uh, the mother-in-law said, you know, was this the way it was with Jesus? That he just sat around with his disciples and discussed the truths of God? Was this the way it was? And I think it was. I think they spent a lot. You know, there's uh, Jesus ministered for about three and a half years as far as we can tell. But only 81 days is recorded. As we can discern, 81, 82 days is really actually recorded as to what he did or what he was doing. <clears throat> Most of the time, there's no record of it. I wonder what he was doing. I wonder, you know, he'd say then Jesus went to the regions of Tyre and Sidon. That was about a three-day walk. How, what did they do during that time? And I think the thing that's, uh, <clears throat> that is attractive to me, and, and I, I would hope that you would have some means of doing that. You have a little freshman team or something. Um, I hope you have means of getting together and discussing the things of God. Um, maybe no agenda, no forum, no <clears throat> uh, schedule. You just get together and have some coffee and you discuss the truths of God. Uh, th those times solidify in your thinking how you're going to live. They really do. The first uh, meeting we had, <clears throat> uh, my uh, we're talking about endurance, and Josh did a super job of taking us to Second Timothy. And then I wanted to say, okay, how do you how do you endure? What is critical? And here again, uh, I'm sorry, but I mean I work with businessmen, and businessmen don't want anything but. I mean, it, it's, got to, it's got to be the truth. And it's got to work, and it's got to work now, and it's got to work every time. So we don't have a lot of uh, non-essential conversations. But um, <clears throat> I wanted to, I wanted, as I thought about, uh, you know, how do you endure? What's critical? What's, what's the key to that? What, what, is, what is essential for, for, you know, in, to enable you to endure? What, what is it? And that's what I, the first thing I had down, of course, is the way you think. If, you, if you're not thinking correctly, you're not living correctly. Period. How do you think? Why do you think that way? And I wanted to, you to know and see that it comes out of your values, that which you really want in life. You can't hide that. You may not be able, you may not have expressed it, but they're there. 
You have certain values in life that you, that you want, certain things that you, there's three things, certain things that you want to have, certain things that you want to be, and certain things that you want to do. And those values drive your thinking, which drives your actions. So I, I thought that was critical. But then the second part of that was like when uh, Romano mentioned this morning in his testimony there. <clears throat> do you realize how God views you? I mean, you're so precious. God, God made you cell by cell, every one of you. He made you. You are, you are the way you are today because that's God's perfect plan for you. Now, <clears throat> I've thought to myself, and i got a lot of heretical thinking, you know, because I, um, I don't mind thinking outside the box. I do a lot of that. But I thought to myself one day, Jesus, God sent his own son to die for us. And I thought, of course, of course. I mean, he made us. <clears throat> he has a perfect plan for us. He, he, every day he has planned for us. He has a wonderful life for us that Jesus referred to as the abundant life. And then we stray and we leave him and we no longer have fellowship with him. And he rectifies that. He corrects that. Of course. And so I don't mean to say that it was a small matter for a man to send his own son. But I think about it and I thought, you know, what else would he do? He is God. He loves us. He has made us. He longs to have. We are the one, one thing that he created that, that, that can enjoy who he is. And he wants that. Uh, when he first made Adam and Eve in the garden, uh, it's before sin entered the world, it said God would meet with Adam and Eve and they would talk in the cool of the evening. Can you, can you imagine how wonderful that, that must have been? But God met with his, with his chosen, the people that he created, and talked with them in the cool of the evening. And I think God wants to do that with all of us. I think God would love to just spend time with you. You know, I... Uh, I memorized a verse. It's one of those verses just, that's just transitional. It's not one of those pointed verses in here that really has significance. It's just transitional. Jesus had just fi fed 5,000 people. And says, and when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And when it was evening, he was there alone. I thought, of course. And that's what, I think that's the thing that God longs for us to do. It's just to get those times alone with Him and just uh, spend time with Him and converse with Him and pray and talk to Him and think. When I was at A&M, it was all-male school. Uh, 8,000 men. Uh, greatest university ever. No, 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 no shadow of a doubt. <laughs> but Friday nights, they see the it was Corps cadets were mandatory. You had to be in the military, and you wore uniforms twenty four seven. I mean, you were in the you were in the military, and it was extremely demanding. 
But every Saturday morning, I'd hear them. I'd hear them on the drill field. They, they'd be marching by my dorm. I lived in a hard hall, and they'd be marching down the street, the hard hall, headed to the drill field. And they would practice drilling, and they would march, and they would practice until about 10, 10, 30, 11 o'clock in the morning. And then they would dismiss until chow call Monday morning at 7. That's when that was their next formation. But the... Um, so the campus, uh, the, the, after about noon on Saturday, everybody would leave. They'd go to Austin, uh, University of Texas. They'd go to Sam Houston State over in uh, They'd go to Houston. Man, just anywhere where there's, you know, females. <laughs> anywhere. And I would be, uh, but, but I didn't do that. I, uh, I, didn't have, I didn't have any, I just didn't want to do that. And so I would take my Bible and walk across the campus. And I, I mean, several times I, I, I could walk all the way across that campus and never see a soul. And I'd go over to the Baptist building, and uh, it was always open. And I would go up into one of the little prayer rooms they had in the closet. And I would uh, I'd take my Bible, and I would read my Bible and spend time with God for hours, three, four hours. You know, 7 to 11. Then I walked back across campus and back to my dorm. Those are precious times. I, I, I just, uh, I don't know how to encourage you more to do stuff like that. Just get time with God. <clears throat> the second thing we, you know, we talked about was the fact that who is God? And God has gone to great lengths to reveal who he is. And the more we know, I think, the more we realize how just impossible this God is. Someone who, we understand what love is. We understand what, what concern is. We understand, God says, I'll provide all your needs. God says, I'll fight your battles for you. God says, I'll, I'll heal your problems. God says, I will take those things out of your life that you so value that are, that are ruining you. They are taking you down the road that you don't want to go. I will take those things out of your life and replace them with my precious, my, my precious treasures. And he does. And so we begin to learn of this, this, this God who, who never, ever, ever leaves you. I don't care. He never leaves you. And we begin to learn of this God. And so I think to myself, if we're going to do I need to know who this God is. I need to know who God is if we're going to endure. So we talked about that. Then the thing that I, the, the other the part of the uh, uh, answer that I came up with as to endure, what, what do we need to do to endure? And that is we need to learn what love is. And now let me make a statement that will <clears throat> get me in trouble. I, I do that frequently. But I think the church as a whole, generally speaking, not every church, not every congregation, basically fails in two areas. And that is, is that I think most churches just don't simply understand how to define manhood. What is a man of God? And they don't understand that. And they not understanding it, they don't know how to build it. 
And so the emphasis tends to be more on uh, sweetness and kindness and you kind of let people run over you and you let people take advantage of you and you're just kind of nice and humble and you're just a, you're just a, you know, a rag. And I, I think in most churches that men uh, struggle as to who, what a man of God is. <clears throat> I think Watermark, where I attend, the pastor, Todd Wagner, uh, is a man of God. He's, uh, he works out, but he's, uh, he's just solid. He knows what he, he knows his God. He, he, he's, he's convinced of that. He, and he just is so, he's just so solid. He's just a rock. And I think, I think Todd is one of those men. The second area, though, I think that where the church fails, and that is in the definition, their understanding of love. <clears throat> I came to Christ and uh, began to grow, began to read my Bible, attended uh, church every time it was uh, open. But I was raised in a family that uh, there was no way that you could say there was love in that family. My mother was very devotional. She, uh, she was very duty-oriented. She kept the house nice. She uh, kept your clothes nice. She uh, cooked very well. and I mean, she was very dutiful. She did her job. But I think she was just incapable of expressing love. She had been raised in a situation herself where her own mother had rejected her. And she, uh, she had such emotional needs that she just couldn't express unreserved love. She just couldn't do it. My dad, on the other hand, was raised by a, one of the meanest men I've ever known was my, dad, my granddad, my dad's dad. His name was Tabor. He was just mean. He would just do mean things. And so I was raised, and so his, my dad, being raised in that environment, had no idea what love was, and he was kind of mean. He was kind of demanding, very demanding. And uh, I don't know, I had no idea what love was. So I come to Christ, and I, and I hear all this stuff about love, 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 and, and I don't have no, I have no idea what it is. And so, you know, I go off to A&M. A&M's all male. Well, we talked about a lot of things, but love wasn't one of them. And then I go into the Marine Corps. And here again, you know, the, the objective of the Marines is to meet, close with, and destroy the enemy or his will to resist. That's how we trained. Somehow love never got into that. Uh, you know, I don't know. But to meet, close with, and destroy the enemy or his will to resist. I had no idea what love was. <clears throat> it bothered me. And I was a coward by it. I, I actually ran from any discussion on love because I knew I didn't know what it was. <clears throat> but the... Um, but I knew, I knew there was something there that was missing. 
And, and I think what the Holy Spirit of God will do in your life is that he will keep bugging you and nudging you and bringing things to your mind that he wants to work on with you until he finally gets your attention. And <clears throat> I, uh, you know, like I say, talk about business, man, we, there's three things. There's, uh, we're talking about, we're supposed to glorify God, right? That's in scripture, throughout scripture. We're supposed to, our lives are supposed to glorify God. How do you do that? And here again, now you get back to the businessmen. They want to know, give me the details. How do you do that? Don't just give me the concept. Give me the details. And there's three ways that we came up with that you glorify God. Number one is about the decisions that you make. Number two was by the way you react to circumstances. And number three was how you treat people. And we, we, we wrestle with that. How do you glorify God? How do you glorify God? And those three, we came up with those three. By the decisions that you make. I will not do that. I will do this. I will not be that way. I will be this way. I will not go there. I will, et cetera. You glorify God by the decisions that you make. And number two is by the way you react to circumstances. I mean, the bottom falls out. You just got double-crossed. You just got lied to. You just got used. How do you react to that? Can you see God in the circumstances? And number three is by the way you treat people. And so that's kind of the, what I wanted to talk about a little bit this morning is, uh, you know, love is uh, how do you treat people? And the thing about it is, is that the, the, the question is, is that um, how do you treat people? And as I searched the scripture, there was only one way. It never deviated. There was no variance. How do you treat people? I don't care who they are. You love them. Well, what about my enemies? You love them. What about, uh, what about my uh, people that use and take advantage of me? You love them. What about my family? You love them. What about my, my wife? You love them. And I could find throughout Scripture, I could find no variance from that. The way you treat people is that you love them. So then the next question was, could you define what love looks like? Now, <clears throat> Do, uh, do, we, do we have any, what's the, what's the first slide up here, Stephen? Uh, well, uh, scripture. Yeah, by the way, this is, uh, in the scripture, love is called the royal law, loving others. If, however, you're fulfilling the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbors yourself, you're doing well. That is the law, royal law of scripture. The, the law of the king, to love your neighbor as yourself. Next one. Now, here's, here was something that was we worked on what is love, what does it look like? And we came up with, there's two things that involve um, your, every act. 
And when I, I believe personally that when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ, which 2 Corinthians 5.10, for we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ, that each of us may receive the things done in his body according to that which he has done, whether it be good or bad. We shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And I really believe that when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ, we'll basically be asked two questions. What did you do with your life, and why did you do it? Those are the two questions. What did you do, and why did you do it? So it's the act and the motive. The two things, the, the two things that we will be questioned. What did you do, and why did you do it? What's the next one? Okay, here's the act. What is, what is the act of love? What does that look like? Love is very patient and kind. These are all acts. Never jealous or envious, never boastful or proud, never haughty, selfish or rude. That's what love looks like. Those are the acts of love. Now, I would encourage you that you get yourself, uh, I, I memorized this out of the living because I really felt it was so definitive. But I would, I would get, I would memorize 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7. And then I would use that as a template to kind of place that over my actions and how I'm reacting to people and things and circumstances and see if I'm, if I'm responding with love. Love is very patient. You know, I was driving down the road. Uh, this is terrible. My wife and I were going down I-30 one day, going, headed toward Dallas. And she was crying. The reason that she was crying is because I had said some things and done some things that were just ugly. And I was I apologized. I mean, good night. And uh, so I finally, you know, we're driving on the road, and all you can kind of hear is this sniffling as she's over there crying and, you know, kind of wiping her nose. And I'm feeling bad. So I says to her, sweetheart, I, I mean, I... Uh, I know it may be hard to believe, but I truly, I truly love you. And she says to me, well, just what does love look like? And so, being a nice biblical guy, I start quoting this verse. I said, well, love is very patient and kind. And she said, you're neither patient nor kind. And she was right. She was right. And driving down the road, just going down I-30, just she and I, I sat there and I said, God, I want to vow a vow that I will never, ever be impatient or unkind to my wife ever again. I will never be that way. Love is very patient and kind. Those are the acts. What's the motive? This was revelational to me. And I think I shared with you that one year, I read the Bible from you know, cover to cover every year, or, or as one guy says, I read that sucker from Genesis to Maps. <laughs> every, every year. Every year. But... Uh, 
I do that every year. But one year, about three, four, about four years ago, I decided, you know, I've got all these New Testaments that I've never read. I use them as references. J.B. Phillips, the Charles Williams, you know, and some of these Beck and uh, some of these just men of God who taught Greek all their life, and they wrote a translation. And so I just, I'm going to read. I'm going to read four New Testaments. Well, the third one I read was by Wiest. Now, Wiest was an old German scholar up in Chicago someplace, Moody Bible Institute or someplace, that had spent his life studying the Greek. And Wiest, uh, but he wrote and he, he, he tried to give you the picture that the Greek word is communicating. And the Greek word is very pictorial. The Greek, the Greek language it, it speaks in, in, in pictures and in concepts. It's not just word-for-word -word translation. And so when he wrote his New Testament, it was, it was these word pictures. And, uh, and so it's hard to read because, it, you know, one verse will be nine, nine lines long because he's explaining what that word really means and then the, what, what this word really means and what this word, and you know, you're, you're, you're reading that much to get through the verse. But I came to 1 Corinthians 4, 21, and, uh, and he says, now Paul had just mentioned to the Corinthians that you got problems. I know you got problems. You know you got problems. And uh, I'm, I'm, I'm on my way. And then, so then he says, with a stick, now this is weak. You know, he's in, he's, he, shall I pat? I'm going to come with a paddle. Is that what I need to do? So with the stick shall I come to you? Or, and this is where I got. This is where I understood. This is the motive for love, not the act. This is the motive. Shall I come to you with a stick or in a love that has as its impelling motive the benefit of the one love? The exercise of which love demands self-sacrifice and a spirit of meekness. And I said, that's it. That's it. That's what I have been looking for. I knew the acts of love. I knew how to be sweet and kind and nice and say nice things and, and be gentle. And I knew how to do that kind of stuff. But I didn't know the motive behind it. I didn't know what would cause me to be that way. Not just kind of put on a front of being a nice guy and saying nice things and showing up at church and looking good. But what, what is the motive? What causes me to be a man of love? I'm not, I'm not doing the acts of love. I am a man of love. What, cause, what brings that about? And, the, and this verse, just, it just laid it out for me. And so I, I looked at all that, and I thought, back up, you know. <clears throat> See, it, it, it's an impelling motive. I don't have an option. Everything that I do has as its motive the benefit of the one loved. Now, it'll cost me. Self-sacrifice, it will cost me to be that way. If I always do what's in your best interest, if I always do what's best for you, it will cost me. And in the spirit of meekness. I don't, and I, I don't know if I've got that up there, the meekness or not. But that, that became the, all of a sudden, that's the motive of love. Now, what's the next one? Love is always doing what is in the best interest of the other person. Always. You never deviate from that. What's the next one? 
Here's a verse in 1 Thessalonians 5.14, and we urge you, brethren. Now, you think to yourself, I always do what's in the best interest of the other person. Does that mean that it's always nice, sweet, kind, gentle? No. That may not be what's best for them. You know, we spanked our kids. You know why we did that? Because we were convinced that was the best thing for them. That what they had said, what they had done, was so contrary to what would make them uh, uh, make them grow up to be a successful person and the one who enjoys life and people. And it was so contrary to that that needed to be corrected, and so we would. Painful, but it, but we did it because it was we in our in our thinking it was the very best thing for them, and that's what we did. But the. Uh, and so we urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly. So what do you got a guy? You got a guy in church, he's kind of unruly. What do you do? Oh, well, he's, he, you know, he's kind of young, so we'll overlook that. No, 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 no. What do you do if you got somebody, you admonish him? Well, admonish, encourage the faint. What does the faint-hearted need? He needs to be encouraged. Help the weak. And this would be patient with all men. See that no one returns, this is a key, see that no one re repays another with evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another. That is throughout Scripture. Once I saw 1 Corinthians 4.21, the motive. Now, it's everywhere. I see it everywhere in Scripture. That this is, we always do what's best for the other person. That's everywhere. One other little tidbit here is that uh, when Paul was defining love in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 4. Love is very patient. And I thought to myself, when the Holy Spirit, speaking through Paul, was defining love for, for us, the first word that, that came to Paul's mind through the Holy Spirit was patient. Love is very patient. And then I see right here, no backup, no... Yeah, yeah, there. Be patient. I don't care how you respond to them, whether they're unruly, they're weak, whether they're faint, you're patient with them. I think the, uh, one of the, one, probably one of the notable characteristics of love is that you're just patient. You're not demanding it's got to be done now, like I say, when I say. There's just a patience. Now, but you see that throughout. What's the next slide? I know Romans 14, 14, 15. This is, I, I memorized the 14th chapter of Romans. I just felt like it was so rich. But I know and am convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is, un, this is where Paul says now, Except the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. One man has faith that he may eat all things. Another, has, another eats vegetables only. Let, him, let not him who eats regard with contempt him who does not eat. And let not him who eats judge him who eats for God as he accepted him. Who are you to judge the servant of another, etc.? Well, as it goes on down, he's talking about, you know, these weak Christians were so uh, concerned about eating meat that it had been offered to idols. And it was an offensive thing to them. And so Paul is dealing with that. And he says, I know and am convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. 
I mean, it's meat. It's been offered. It's meat. Nothing is unclean in itself. But to him who thinks anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. For if because of food, get this, your brother is hurt, you are no longer walking according to love. If you say, well, I don't see anything wrong with it. I'm going to go ahead and eat it. And you hurt him and you offend him. You are no longer walking according to love. That is not how love treats another fellow. And so that's the, do not destroy with your food him for, him for whom Christ died. What's the next one? Now, we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those who are without strength and not just please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to his edification. It's, it's, it's just everywhere in Scripture that you always do that which is best for the other person. Always. So what... Uh, What's the next one? Two demands, self-sacrifice and a spirit of weakness. What's the next one? This is meekness. Uh, Neil, why don't you read that? This is, a, I got this out of the Unger's Bible Dictionary. It was actually a book. I opened a book. and got, I didn't go to my iPhone or my iPad. or my, I actually opened a book. <laughs> Because though this may not be true, it's so old. I got it out of a book, you know. But Neil, read that. The exercise of it is first and chiefly toward God. The Greek term expresses that temper or spirit in which we accept his dealings with us without disputing or resisting. Do you get that? We accept God's dealings with us without making a fuss and arguing and criticizing and being unhappy and crying and fussing. So read that again. We accept You are commanded to be that way. You cannot love unless you are that way. You've got to be able to see God in the circumstances. And you've got to understand circumstances as coming from God. And you, you, you view the whole thing as coming from God. God didn't let anything get out of control. He didn't slip up on anything. But if, if Paul says that, that, that Paul says that the exercise of which demands self-sacrifice and the spirit of meekness, you've got to be that way, or you will not love. You'll always revert to what I think, what's best for me, or what he deserves. I'm going to give him what he deserves, but you will not, you'll fail to act in the biblical definition of New Testament definition of love. I wouldn't, uh, you might can uh, 
print that out and make, put that in a little folder. Just paste that to your bulletin board. That's how you're supposed to be. That's a good word. That's a good word. What's the next one? So who do you love? And then, I, like I mentioned earlier, in a word, everybody. There's no, there are no exceptions. I couldn't find any exception that we're supposed to respond to them out, out, not with love. I couldn't find them. So go ahead. Well, God is, you know, we, we, you know teaching which is the great commandment and law, and he said, you should love the Lord your God with all your heart. Have you ever thought about that? Do you love God with all your heart and with all your soul and all your mind? But we're, we're commanded to. You shall love the Lord your God. So we love God with everything. Your wife. Ephesians 5.25 Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. The uh, can I read you a little thing? I, I sat. I was sitting at my desk one day, and I wrote myself a note because I deal with a lot of young couples. Got a bunch of little old kids. I mean, two, three, four kids running here, worrying a good night. And I have a lot of like I have a lot of young couples. Thoroughly enjoy being a part of their family. But I wrote down here, nothing will affect your kids more or better than watching their dad obey God in the way he treats their mom. Nothing will affect your kids more than watching their dad obey God in the way he treats their mom. Their mom. Uh, one of the businessmen, we talked one day, and I asked him, I said, what, uh, in three words, what's the best thing you can do for your kids? In three words, what's the best thing you can do for your kids? Love their mother. Best thing you can do. If you love their mother as Christ, I mean, we're talking New Testament love, we're talking about acts and motives here. But if you do that, it's the best thing, you, best possible thing you could do for your kids. Is to love their mom. So a guy comes to me and he says to me, uh, "Boy, you, uh, you you just don't understand my wife." And I say to him, uh, "You're right, but I understand the scripture." And then he comes to me and he says. Uh, but boy, you just don't know what my, my wife has become. Man, we got married and she's just turned into this witch. I'm telling you, man, it's just horrible. And I say to him, that's right. But I'm not interested in what your wife has become. What I'm interested in is what are you becoming? One thing about working with Ben, we just get nose to nose. It's really refreshing, painful sometimes. But I told the guy that. And I told the guy, I said, the reason that your wife is not walking with God today is 100% your fault. Oh, no, no, no. I'm, I've asked her to go to church so many times, and I've invited her to this. And I, yeah, yeah, okay, forget all that. The reason is because of the way you treat her. And I'm right. I know I'm right. 
You know why I know I'm right? Because the Bible is right. You know when uh, <clears throat> I married uh, my son. Uh, he and his uh, fiance and they, they they had bought a house and it was out on Lake Louisville, really neat place. So we got married. They got married in the backyard, right on the lake. And uh, their dog. Carl was the uh, best dog. <laughs> he, he had a little collar around, best dog. And he was, and so when they go down the aisle, here, here comes Jeff with the dog, you know. So, anyway, we had a fun time. Now, she comes out of a background that wasn't, wasn't uh, it was somewhat Catholic, but really not anything. So I'm, 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 I'm marrying them out here in this backyard, and I, and I told Susie when she came to me, she said, would you, would you marry us? That's my daughter-in-law. And I say, uh, I say, well, Susie, I can do that, but I'm, all I know to do is just come right down the gun barrel as far as the, what the Scripture says. That's all I know to do. Let's just come right down the gun barrel. This is what the Bible says marriage is, husband's wife, and so forth. And she said, that's exactly what we want. Now, on this side was all of her, her, her kin, and we had some bleachers set up out there. But you know, I came to the part, I said, now, Here's the deal. The purpose for marriage is not procreation or sex or having kids. The, the purpose for marriage is that the two might become one flesh. And if God gave us that as the objective, we can assume He tells us how to do it. And sure enough, He does. And so I go to Ephesians 5, husbands love your wives as Christ also loved the church. And then I go to Ephesians 5 where it says, you know, wives, submit yourselves to your husband." And verbally, in, in her side of the, the, the bleachers there, there were several comments. Oh, that'll never happen. She ain't never, you know, that ain't going to work. I mean, I mean, verbally. This was coming from women uh, this is ugly, but I'm just going to be ugly. You know, most of them, you know, were about 150 pounds overweight and just, uh, and, and divorced two or three times. And they're telling her What's, what makes a marriage? You are telling her what makes a marriage? <clears throat> but I went through all of this. Very, very, and, and that's how they live. Now, my, my, my they have, uh, they've been married down 12 years. And they've got a good marriage. And, it, and they got two little twin, two little boys. They're twins, 10 years old. And they had a, uh, Susie had a lot of problems getting pregnant. She just couldn't do it. She was 40, and uh, she just couldn't do it. So they tried in vitro, and they tried everything. And a lot of money, a lot of time, a lot of efforts. So finally they realized that what we're going to have to do is we have to get a donor. And so they got this donor. And she was about Susie's height and color hair and all that kind of stuff. And they took her eggs and uh, fertilized them outside the, uh, outside the womb and then reinserted them into the womb. Now, they told her, said, Susie, if, if we insert one, you got a 50-50 chance. Now, if we insert two, you got a 65% chance. So she said, well, let's insert two. And they did. And they had twins. <laughs> they had twin boys. 
But the funny thing about it is that they had spent so much time and so much money that when that first little boy was born, they named him Cash. <laughs> That's a true story. <laughs> true story. <clears throat> My wife and I, uh, every night uh, when we, we go to bed, we all snuggle up, and we've done this for years. But we just all snuggle up and we're facing the same way. And uh, I'll put my arm around her and just hold her real tight. You know, one time when we lived in San Diego, we lay in bed one night and my wife had her arm around me. And all of a sudden she, she just goes, and I'm thinking, what, what? And she says, well, sometimes I just need to know you're there. And I'm serious. I can remember laying in the dark that night thinking, women are weird. <laughs> I'm serious. I'm serious. Women are weird. But she says, sometimes I just need to know you're there. Yeah, I know what she, uh, now I know what she meant. I got that now. But at the time I thought, wow, yeah. yeah. I don't know that. But, uh, but, uh, Sometimes I need just I just need to know you're there, and I uh, I'm not sure that. Uh, but anyway, we live, man. We'll all snuggle up there, and I will put my arm around her and, and pull her real tight, and and then I'll pray. The Lord bless you, and keep you. The Lord make His face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you, and give you peace. Thus they shall invoke my name on the sons of Israel, and I then will bless them. And what, what God says to, through Aaron, Aaron prays that prayer, and then God responds, now you have brought me into the deal. You have invoked my name, and I will, I will now bless you. I'm a part of your family. I will bless you. So I memorized Psalms, if I can quote it, Psalms, I think it's 31, 19. How great is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you, which you have wrought for those who take refuge in you. How great is your goodness. And so I will pray I'll, as we're all snuggled up there, and I quote that verse in Leviticus, and then I'll pray for each of our family, Jennifer and her family, and Amy and her family, and Jeff and her family, and then for Robbie and I that the living God would bless us with his abundant goodness. I pray that every night. But I love my wife. I, uh, I finally got there, I think. Um, a lot of tears because I didn't know what love was. I'd been raised by a dad who was pretty mean and harsh, demanding, his way or no way. And uh, I didn't know what love was. But, uh, but you know, that's the wonderful thing about God is that God will see you and how you are, and he will correct it. He will not allow you to continue with habits and ways that are detrimental to who you are. He will not allow that. And so I, I'm just so, so, so grateful. But I think I, I think I finally learned what it means, you know, to love my wife. I really, I really do.
I think if I, I'm not told in Scripture to love anybody like I'm told to love my wife. Nobody. I, I love my wife differently than anybody. I love my wife as Christ loved the church. I'm not told to love anybody else like that. She is unbelievably precious to me. Two, the two shall become one flesh. So what else? Who else? By the way, I, I have a guy that we meet. His name's Ken. He's part of our group. He's, a, he's really been obstinate. And I told him that, uh, back that up, back that up, okay, you know what I'm saying? No, back it up again. Okay, what's the next one? Okay, that one. First of all, this is a command, but secondly, there are no conditions. There is no, my wife does not have to respond to me with any sort of reciprocity. None. Nowhere in Scripture is the wife told to love the husband. Nowhere. She is to, to submit to his leadership, but nowhere in Scripture is the wife commanded to love the husband. So there's no rest of her. I love her that way regardless. At, because as Christ loved the church. I have no options. I don't... Uh, there are no conditions that she has to meet. We're not told to love anyone else like that. And I don't love anyone on this earth like I love my wife, including my kids. And I have seen families make bad mistakes when the wife or the husband would begin to love the kids more than they love their spouse. They found their identity and they found their affection in, in their kids. And that's, that, that is, that's a trap door to... That's bad. Okay, let's go to, I think we go to neighbors. Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. This is Romans 13, 8 through 10. Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For this, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there's any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Love, therefore, is the fulfillment of the law. That's amazing. You can take all of the Old Testament, all the laws that we are commanded to follow throughout the, that came down from Mount Sinai, that Moses brought down for the people of Israel to follow, to, to follow their God. This is what it takes. Every one of them is fulfilled when you love your neighbor as yourself. Every one of them. So, let's back up a little bit. Back, back. Now, here, let me ask you some questions. I ask myself, does God, does God love me? And I think, well, the scriptures tell me that. And my experiences confirm that. That God does love me. But if that's true, God has never done me wrong. Ever. Did you hear that? 
that if I believe that God has never done me wrong. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. And if God loves me, he has never done me wrong. And I can go back and look at the, the things that have happened in my life, good, bad, or green, ugly stuff, good stuff, and I can go, and God has never done me wrong. He has always done that which was in my best interest, which was the best for me because he loves me. He does not do me wrong. I cannot tell you the solidifying, the, 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 the feeling of security and uh, just the fact that I can trust this God who will never do me wrong. I can trust that God. And my relationship to him, my, my confidence in him, my joy in him, my just, ref, just longing to be with him. I had um, Ruth Tucker is a historian. She teaches at Calvin College in uh, Minneapolis or someplace. Reformed, reformed school, reformed theology. And Ruth has written a number of books, I think maybe around 15 books on the church history. The one of the best, and I could highly recommend this, one of the best she wrote I thought was just phenomenal on the work of God down through the ages. She called it from, from Jerusalem to Irian Jaya. Now Jerusalem, we said, you know, starting in Jerusalem, we know the Acts 1-8, but you shall receive power after the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me both in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and under the uttermost parts of the earth. But you start in Jerusalem. So she titled her book, From Jerusalem to Irian Jaya, which is about the uttermost parts of the earth. Irian Jaya is a section of uh, Borneo, a section of... Um, uh, anyway, it's, uh, it's, oh, what's the name of the country? But anyway, it's, it's the uttermost parts of the earth. And she wrote a book from Jerusalem. I read the book, read it twice. Tremendous book. One night, uh, Ruth was on the board at Laterno University, a Christian school. And so, uh, and I knew uh, one of the engineers at the Christian school, and so I, I met Ruth. And so we went out for dinner one night. Uh, Ruth and, and uh, Paul and Ann and, and Robbie and I. And we're sitting there having just a delightful time. Talking about the work of God, the things of God. Just having a delightful time. So I finally asked her, I said, Ruth, let me ask you a question. And she likes to debate. She likes to kind of argue and philosophize. And she's, she's kind of per perky like that. She, she really enjoys that. She, she likes a good challenge. And so I asked her, Ruth, let me ask you a question. Last thing Jesus told us to do on this earth was to go and make disciples of all the nations. Now, assuming he was serious. We'll give him the benefit of the doubt. Assuming he was serious. Why haven't we pulled it off? I mean, she didn't miss a breath. She said, because we don't love each other. And it was so center of target, so dead center that all I could respond with was exactly. Exactly. But why, have we, why haven't we pulled it off? We've had over, you know, we've had thousands of years. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. Why haven't we done that? And the answer is simply because we do not love each other.
John 13, 34 and 35. You know the verse. A new commandment I give unto you. Jesus said, you've got 10, now you've got 11. I'm going to give you a new command. A new commandment I give unto you that you love one another. As I have loved you, that you love one another. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples if you have loved one to another. It's the only mark of the Christian. It's the only thing that will mark you as a Christian. And that is that you always, always respond in love to the, to, the, the, to the circumstances or to the person. You always respond in love. Which is what? Always doing that which is in his best interest. Now, I was sharing with a couple of guys, maybe over the human being, we were over talking and whatever, and uh, he's got a difficult situation. He's got a guy that criticizes him all the time for, for no reason. He's just an ugly guy. How should he respond? What's best for him? Not of what I feel like? Not what I'd like to say? It's what's best for him. And here's the thing, that if you will do that, he will know that, you are, that, 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 that your relationship to God is real. He'll know that. By this shall all men know that, not some, not, not a few, not many, all men will know that you are my disciples. If you have loved one to another. If you will do this. So, even our enemies. Is that the next one? Yeah, you've heard that it was said, I memorized this, that uh, you should love your neighbors yourself, and hate, you should love your neighbors but hate your enemies. I went back in the Old Testament to find that. I couldn't find it. You've heard that it was said, you should love your neighbor and hate your enemies. The love your neighbor was there, hate your enemies wasn't. I could not find where you, where that we were told to hate our enemies. I couldn't find it. Love your neighbor, yes. Hate your enemies, no. But Jesus said, you've heard that it was said you should love your neighbor and hate your enemies. But I say to you, love your enemies and do good to those who persecute you. In order that the, you may be the sons of your Father who is in heaven. And see, when you live that way and you react that way and you treat others that way, you're treating others like God treats people. You're like his son. Because that's the way God treats people. <clears throat> it goes on to say, uh, you know, in order that you're fine. For he sends his, he sends his son on the, to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the, on the just and the unjust. That's the way God treats people. Do you? But the thing that I found that there's nobody outside of these commands that you're you're to love you are to love people I don't care who it is and love is defined as always doing what's in their best interest now here's one Proverbs twenty seven six. And we, I mean, this has come up before in our little groups. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. And I can tell you right now that I am grateful to God that he has brought people into my pathway who love me enough to rebuke and correct me. Faithful 
or the wounds of a friend. You, um, What's the next one, Stephen? You know, here's, a, here's the most poignant or just dramatic illustration of, the, of this concept of loving people in all of Scripture. I couldn't find anything that just more captured the essence of what I'm trying to say than this little story about Naaman the leopard. And Naaman, who was a Syrian, and it says that they would make forays over into Israel and they'd make raids on these little towns and they would grab stuff and, and cattle and all that. And then they would capture these little girls and bring them back to be their slaves. So this little gal is a slave. A Jew living with a Syrian family. No hope. No future. Living with this Jewish family. Living with this Syrian family. And you know what she said? This is incredible. She said, now Naaman, captain of the army of the king of Aram, was a great man with his master. And highly respected because by him the Lord had given victory to Aram. The man was a valiant warrior, but he was a leper. Now the Arameans had gone out in bands and had taken captive a little girl from the land of Israel. And she waited on Naaman's wife. Now get this. And she said to her mistress, I wish that my master were with the prophet who is in Samaria. He would cure him of his leprosy. So here is a slave, a gal that had been ripped out of her home, ripped away. Her parents had probably been killed in the raid. And you know what she was thinking? I just wish that my master could visit the prophet and say, she's talking about Elijah. I mean, it's just unbelievable. That's the best, that's the best illustration I can find in all of Scripture of treating people with love. A slave, no hope, ripped out of your home, your parents probably killed, no future. And what was her thought? I wish my master, I, 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 I'd like to see him better. I, I, just, I, don't, I can't find any scripture that's, that's more potent than that as far as defining what we're talking about. So... <clears throat> Next one. Now here's Nahum. He goes over and uh, he finally meets Elijah. And so, he, and, and so he tells him to go down and dip seven times in the Jordan and he's, and he's all mad at that because the Jordan is a filthy river and they got better rivers than that in Syria. And he's all upset. He's all ticked off. And he's a great man and you want me to go down and wade into some muddy river and oh, I'm not doing that. But he did. Finally he did. His men told him, he said, you know, if he had asked you to do something just unreasonably hard, wouldn't you have done it? And if it's just a simple thing like wading out into the river, can't you do that? And his own men convinced him, okay. And so he untakes, takes off all of his uniform and everything, wades out into this seven times. They're all sitting on the shore on their horses Watching their guy walk out there and walk out in the river up to his waist, up to his splashing water on him and leprosy over here. 
Nothing's happening. He walks back out. His men are sitting on their horses watching him. He'll turn, he walks back in again, you know, gets in there and looks at his leprosy, splashes, and nothing happens. Comes back out, walks, men, his men sitting on their horses just watching this guy. Thing, and he's thinking, what a fool I am. What a fool. He does this seven times. That's what Elijah told him to do. The seventh time, he goes out, he sees splashing stuff off, and he turns to walk out, and his flesh is pure. It's gone. He's cured. So he goes back, and, and he says he goes back to the man of God. And uh, he said, I, uh, he goes back, he said, I, uh, behold, now I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. And Naaman said, please let your servant at least be given two mules load of earth, for your servant will no longer burn, offer burnt offerings, nor will he sacrifice to other gods, but to your Lord. So Naaman, after he's cured, gets on his horse. He goes back to see Elijah. Elijah won't even come to the door. And he said, um, could I get a couple of loads of dirt? Because when I go back home and my king asks me to go to the temple to worship with him, I'm going to put that dirt down beside the altar where he's worshiping, and I'm going to stand on the dirt. I'm going to stand on the land of Israel because there is only one God. Now, by this shall all men know that you are my disciples. And I just, uh, <clears throat> it's the only way to live if we want to be effective, if we want to have God work through our lives If we want to be living examples of who he is. Is there another one? Yeah. New commandment. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples if you have loved one to another. Was there another one? Now, see, here's the deal. Jesus says to his disciples, this is so crucial that I'm not going to ask you to do it. I'm going to command you to do it. It is so crucial to you representing me. You want to represent me? You want to go into all the world and make disciples? You represent me? I just want you to know that this is so crucial that I'm going to command that you do it. This is so totally who I am that I command it to be totally who you are. And there's no one outside any of these commandments. And I just put down a note to myself, work on it until you become it. You practice that, you practice that, you practice that. Am I, doing, am I doing what's best for that person? Am I doing the right thing here? Well, <clears throat> three things. Number one is how do you think and do you realize that God has made you for a certain person and are you on track to becoming that person? Number two, do you understand who, who your God is? Do you, do you realize who your God is? And number three, are you willing to love as Christ loved the church and gave himself up? Are you willing to love
that all men know that you might know that you are my disciples. So I'm hoping that you will endure. You'll make it. And, uh, but I would like for those three things to become part of your thinking. Most of you are pretty young, and you've got a long time to live, most of you. It just should get better and better and better. And I hope it does. As you learn and you grow and you apply and you do and you live and you buy it. You buy it. So any, any, anybody got a comment or a question? Oh, yes. When you talked about acts and motives. Yes. Those were, I can see how you applied it to people. Yes. But then later you said, you know, who do you love? And the person was God. So in yeah. that view, how do you love God? Well, here's that's a good question. How do you love God? And I've asked myself that. You know, Chuck, how do you love God? And the answer is I can't. And I ask myself, how do you give to God? I, you know, I, I can't give to God. You know how you do that? I, I can't love God. I love, I love God's people. I can't give to God. I give to God's people. And so you, you can't, uh, we have all these concepts, and, and it's true, biblical concepts about how you, sh- you know, and uh, I should love God with all my heart, that's right, but I can't. I can't see him. I don't know where he is, but I can love his people. Any other comment or question? Yes. What? Ruth Tucker. That's a super good book on church history. One of the best I've ever read. Irianjaya. I R I A N J A Y A. It's a. They've divided up some countries over in. In the South Borneo, and I think Erie and Jaya was one of them. <clears throat> well, has the weekend been worth it? Has the week been worth it? Yes. You need to, uh, what you need to do is you need to now do, hold up what I do. Okay, now what? You remember I talked about, okay, what, so what, and now what? Now we're talking, about, okay, now what? That's where we are. And don't, don't think that you can do that later. It'll, 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 it'll leave you. It'll, 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 be, it'll leave your mind. It'll leave your thinking. But I tell people, you know, when you go to church and you hear a fantastic sermon, man, it's a stem winder. You forget 95% of it before you get to your car. So now, but, but unless you take notes, which I encourage all of our people to do, I take notes and then say, God, no, okay, now what? So what and now what? And that's where we are. So any other comments or Yes. Uh, you say right here, work on this until it becomes who you are. Yeah, yes, yes. Is that just out of your own effort? Are you yes. asking God for help? Well, I ask God for help in everything. Yeah, the, the world's most famous prayer, God help me. <laughs> and that is, that's the world's most famous, I mean, that's the most famous prayer in the world, God help me. And I pray that, God help me. But I, it is my responsibility I can't say God help me unless you do something. I, no, 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 no. It's your responsibility. And so I, um, uh, but I, I work at it until it becomes who you are. Every situation, every circumstance. You love, you, you do that which is best for the other person. 
in his best interest. It may be a rebuke. It may be, uh, you may call the cops on what he's doing, but you're doing what in your mind is the best thing for them. Always. You always respond that way. And all men will know that you're different if you do. They will know there's something different about you. Yes? How do you determine if it's in their best interest, though? Because maybe you might think you're helping, but you could actually... Yeah, it's a subjective call. And I think God leaves that up to us. But you've got to think, okay, now what's the best thing for them? And that's subjective. Mm -hmm. And you may miss. But the thing about it is is that you you, you did that which you thought was best. And the next time something happens, you do that which you think is best. Every time. But it's a, it's a subjective call. Any other? Okay. Well, thanks for letting me be a part.